Welcome to OGGN's Mixer Connections podcast. Here each month, the insights and stories from the people and companies that make our industry mixers possible are captured while also allowing us to contribute to charity. So here's your host, Kamal Kar. Our guest today is Brad Gibbs. Brad represents clients in connection with upstream energy transaction, complex mineral titles, pooling issues, lease analysis, joint operating agreements, surface use issues, title curative, and general oil and gas business matters. He is licensed to practice law in North Dakota, Texas, New Mexico, and Wyoming. Brad is active in numerous oil and gas and landman industry associations and frequently speaks at energy conferences and events. He is board certified in oil and gas mineral law by Texas Board of Legal Specialization and has been recognized as a top rated energy and natural resource lawyer in Houston since 2018. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be a guest on your podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Brad. I did a little bit of a long intro for you, but I would love for you to go ahead and introduce yourself, your journey, and tell us a little bit about Olivia and Gibbs. Well, I don't know if I can add too much to that wonderful introduction, so I appreciate that. Once again, my name is Brad Gibbs. I'm with the law firm Oliva Gibbs. We are an upstream oil and gas firm based in Houston, Texas. We also have offices around the country, including Columbus, Ohio, Oklahoma City, Lafayette, Louisiana, and most recently Midland, which we're very excited about. I've been practicing law for 11 years now, going on 12 And since the very beginning, I've been in oil and gas, mostly focusing on mineral transactional matters, Um, also working with operators on uh, different types of agreements, contract drafting. And we also have a burgeoning litigation section at the firm that we're very excited about. That's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about your customers and what industry or industries that you serve? Yeah, so most of our customers tend to be upstream oil and gas exploration and production companies, ENPs. We work with a number of different types of ENPs, everything from publicly traded to private equity backed to uh, smaller independently owned companies. Our clients are based all over the country and their operations are focused on basins all across the country. So we do a fair amount of work in the Utica and the Marcellus, um, in the Haynesville in East Texas and Louisiana, the Permian Basin, the Bakken in North Dakota and Montana, and pretty much anywhere else you can name that's an active and producing jurisdiction. You know, we probably have some presence there. We have attorneys that are licensed and active in about a dozen or so states now. That's amazing. So Texas and the U.S. in general, and this is going based off of our conversation that we had over the phone before we got together for this podcast. But in the U.S. generally, there is a lot of growth when it comes to renewable and alternative energy, especially in that market. And it's been picking up a lot in the past couple of years, and there's a lot of projection for it to grow even further. So how does this emerging market pose a new opportunity for your firm or for other firms that are currently serving oil and gas industries right now? Well, that's a great question. And far from seeing it as a threat or you know some kind of uh, impediment to our way of life, we do see it as an opportunity. And interestingly, and I get really excited about this stuff, traditional oil and gas law often applies directly to a lot of renewable development activities, particularly because as fate would have it, a lot of these solar and wind farms are being built on a legacy producing oil fields. And so you're seeing a lot of interaction between mineral rights owners and their lessees and solar developers. 
And it's been very interesting watching the intersection of these two and how they kind of are developing side by side and how they're going to have to learn to accommodate and live with each other over time. So we found an interesting niche advising solar developers on mineral and oil and gas law, particularly in Texas recently. And it's been really interesting educating these companies, working with these companies, and learning their perspective on these things because they often come to Texas, for example, with very little understanding of what mineral rights mean in Texas and how this could potentially interfere with their operations. And can you just elaborate a little bit more on that, especially when it comes to the New York companies coming and not quite understanding the mineral rights? Explain to our audience that are not too aware of what mineral rights are, what they are, and honestly, how important they are. Sure, absolutely. And that's a large and wide ranging topic. And I will try to keep it as, you know, kind of narrow as possible to answer your question. So oftentimes a surface owner may own the minerals under their land, which means they have the right to go in and develop the oil and gas. Other times, and this is very frequently the case in Texas, these mineral rights may be severed, as we call it, which means that you might have one party owning the surface and another party and often many parties owning the mineral rights under that surface. Texas adheres to uh, what's commonly referred to as the dominant estate theory. And so what that means is that Texas courts have said, look, we've got this interest in exploiting and developing the minerals in Texas. You know, we want to make sure that we're not encumbering that in any way. Therefore, these mineral owners have what's called a dominant right to enter onto the surface and use as much of the surface as is reasonably necessary to develop their minerals. So how that translates for uh, solar developers is if you're a solar developer, that is a very surface intensive use. You know, you are blanketing the surface with these solar panels and there's very little room to do anything else physically on the land. So what these solar developers are finding, and there's some recent case law out of West Texas, the uh, Midway Solar case in particular, where the Texas courts have said, hey, look, solar developers, you have to accommodate this oil and gas use. And if that means that you have to remove a portion of your facility, even if you have to remove all of your facility in order to allow that to happen, then that's the way it's going to go because the mineral owners have this superior right to use the surface and we're not going to leave these minerals stranded. Now, obviously, public policy is starting to shift the other direction, but as it stands right now, these mineral rights are still very much superior. You could find yourself in a position of having to remove a portion of your facilities or pay damages to the mineral owners in the full amount of their destroyed value of their minerals. So it can be a very harsh result for the unexpecting solar developer. And going back to the Midway Solar case, that's exactly what happened in that case was Midway Solar had not gone to the uh, mineral owners to negotiate surface use waivers. And therefore, the mineral owners were able to come forward and say, hey, Midway Solar, we're very unhappy with what you've done to the surface. And, you know, we basically are going to extort you now for uh, as much money as we possibly can. And that case was particularly interesting because this was an area without a lot of oil and gas development going on. And these owners were probably looking to exploit a little bit of value from their otherwise valueless minerals. They saw a solar developer on their surface with potentially deep pockets, and they said, well, here's an opportunity. Squeeze a little bit of value. Squeeze a little blood from the stone, as it were. So how does, like, I know you work with a lot of 
solar companies or any other alternative companies that are coming up, especially in Texas and other states as well. So how do they differ in terms of their behavior if it's a startup versus if it's a large ENP company that is going into, let's say, solar or going into wind? Are they less equipped or are they more equipped, more vulnerable, less vulnerable? Yeah. So ironically, probably some of the best equipped companies are the large oil and gas developers. They've got this deep understanding of land rights and mineral rights. They've got landmen on staff and they've got real estate departments. You know, they're able to go and negotiate a lot of these contracts, which are not that different from other surface use and oil and gas lease type contracts that they've been developing for decades. Not only that, but they've got just kind of the general know-how, the knowledge of the area, the relationships a lot of times with the surface owners um, and with the mineral owners. Whereas you see a lot of, I guess, what you refer to as startup companies. And some of these companies are quite interesting and they've started popping up like mushrooms. A lot of them are effectively tax shelters. And what's happening is that these companies are popping up, raising money, raising private equity money, raising you know private money to put together packages to try to flip to larger solar developers. And in doing so, they're able to uh, write off a lot of the profits. They're able to basically make their money tax-free. So a lot of people are seeing this as just an investment opportunity because of the fact that these activities are so heavily subsidized and propped up right now through tax incentives. That is a lot to take in. <laughs> <laughs> but I think just our conversation that we've had, it was pretty much an eye-opener for me because I feel like as a person who is in this oil and gas industry and also work on a lot of the alternative projects and renewable energies that the company is working on, Looking into the legal perspective is not something that we, as a big company, we have our legal teams. We have the teams that are going and they're looking into the laws, reading the lay of the land, basically. But when it comes to the vulnerability and, like you said, the smaller companies that are just popping out, they're just out there. Like That's a really big reason why they should hire or work with law firms like yours, just so that they're a lot more equipped and then they're just not that vulnerable in our industry right now. And just based off of that, what do you think are the biggest opportunities for the energy industry right now? So I think the biggest opportunities for the energy industry at the moment come from embracing the uh, energy transition, particularly right now because of the fact that there are all these tax incentives and subsidies in place, and you can earn a lot of carbon credits. And so what you're seeing a lot of the large EMPs doing is, and I hate to use this term, it sounds derogatory, but they're essentially greenwashing you know, their activities, and they're earning these carbon credits through their carbon capture activities through even solar and wind development in some instances, offshore wind, you know, they're looking into these various ways of offsetting their carbon footprint. And in doing so, they don't actually have to change their day-to-day -day operations very much at all. You know, they're still producing as much oil and gas and, you know, fossil fuels as they ever have been, but they're able to offset a lot more of this and take advantage of it. And in some instances, when they are at a carbon credit surplus, these are even very valuable and can be traded on the secondary market. So there's a lot of this kind of moving things around on paper that aren't really leading to a lot of real change or, you know, as far as climate change and these types of ideas go. But again, these companies are ultimately and possibly ironically leading the charge on these activities. They've got deep pockets to develop the technology. They're incentivized to develop the technology. You know, you look at companies like Exxon and a few others who are really 
leading the charge, Oxy as well, on capturing carbon, basically compressing it into small pellets and injecting it into the ground. And and it's pretty fascinating. And they're doing this by siphoning it directly out of the air. And it's pretty amazing how far the technology has come. And as economies of scale begin to apply, it's going to become more and more profitable. It's going to actually turn a real profit instead of just being something that's able to be economical because of the tax breaks and subsidies. So. Wow. So vice versa, what do you think is a point of concern? I mean, I think a point of concern is that as an oil and gas attorney, and a lot of my clients are oil and gas companies, I think that there's a lot of money is not being funneled in to oil and gas right now. There's a lot of shareholder pandering. You've got to show, you know, a certain percentage of your funds are going towards ESG activities, that you're reinvesting profits into this stuff. It's in many instances, curtailing oil and gas activity. It's curtailing oil and gas hiring. It's eliminating jobs. I think this is a problem because the only way this energy transition is ever going to happen is essentially if it's funded and powered by the oil and gas industry. Again, it's kind of an interesting catch-22 and it's a little bit ironic, but that's the way it has to go. And by eliminating funding for a lot of oil and gas projects, we're ultimately hurting the ability to make this transition, as well as uh, jeopardizing our energy independence here in the U.S. So, And what are your views on policy, not only the U.S. policy, but globally? There is some sort of an, like, an effect that the global policies have on the U.S. as well. We see a lot of things popping up in Europe. So how do you think, just in terms of globalization, the U.S. will follow or will there be any big changes in the legislature that will kind of push this industry forward? I think so. I mean, I think if nothing else, there's just a global attitude that this needs to happen. I think that we get a lot of international pressure to adhere to this. At the same time, many of the countries that are putting a lot of the pressure on the industry are also dealing in natural gas. On the other hand, they're incredibly dependent on natural gas. In fact, you saw last winter and over the last year or two, there's been a lot of natural gas shortages. The prices went up. It became very expensive for people to uh, heat and cool their homes. And we're just not there yet. And I think as the narrative has shifted a little bit over the last year, more and more commentators and more and more companies and investors are seeing that this transition is going to take quite a bit longer than anybody had kind of initially predicted. We're talking about something that's going to happen slowly over the next several decades, perhaps, not that's going to change over the next five or 10 years. Yeah, a lot of good changes, definitely. A lot of good changes, Yeah, for sure. a lot of good changes. So you did tell me that you went to U of H for law school. So I I want to step a little bit back. I went to U of H as well, but I just wanted to go ahead and then talk a little bit about your journey on why you decided to pursue law just in your career. Well, it's something I had toyed with. I've got a few attorneys in my family and, you know, it's something that had always kind of interested me even since I was pretty young. I had uh, put it off a little bit after undergrad. I, you know, went out and worked for a few years and decided to actually go work as a paralegal first and see if I liked working in a law office and liked kind of working with lawyers. So I did that. I worked at a couple of firms that did a general civil litigation and a lot of family law. And I absolutely knew that family law was not something that I wanted to do. A very emotionally 
draining practice area. You have to be a very specific kind of person to want to do that. But after doing that for a few years, I took the LSAT. I did well enough to get into U of H, which is a great school. I was very excited about that and really had very little knowledge of what an oil and gas attorney did. A friend of mine approached me one day and said, hey, I've landed an internship at an oil and gas firm and they're looking for somebody else. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. You know, it sounds interesting. It's something I've never done before. And they paid a pretty nice hourly rate for a law clerk. And I was like, that sounds great. So I went and did it. Never really looked back. I just enjoyed it from the very beginning. My plan had been to be a litigator. I landed, you know, in doing more oil and gas transactional work, and that's tended to be uh, more defining of my career since then. I really love the work. It's something I enjoy trying to uh, negotiate and make deals, helping to uh, paper all kinds of transactions, helping to uh, dissect and figure out mineral rights for uh, both mineral owners and oil and gas developers. So it's been quite the journey and one that I've really enjoyed. And now, like you said at the beginning, I've got multiple law licenses across multiple states and uh, have just uh, really enjoyed this journey. For sure. And I feel like I can go a little bit off script, but I really do want to ask you this question. If you could go back to your younger self and give him one piece of advice, what would it be? It would be to stress out less, not worry so much about the future, not focus so much about all the things that are going wrong, and to just enjoy the ride a little bit more. You know, law school is very stressful. Getting started as a young attorney is very stressful, especially when the student loans kick in. I think there's a lot of times where I was so focused on grinding and making sure I did everything right that I probably could have stopped to enjoy the journey a little bit more, you know? Yeah. I mean, it seems like a great journey. You're in a really good place right now. You also do a lot of speaking engagements and you have things on the side that you're really involved with. Yes, I do. I've been very fortunate for whatever reason. People seem to enjoy listening to me blab about things that interest me and what more could you ask for. So I get to do a lot of speaking engagements. We host a number of speaking engagements, the our uh, energy education series through Oliva Gibbs. And if anybody out there is interested in signing up for that, please come visit our website and follow the link. And we talk about a lot of different legal matters that are of particular interest to oil and gas operators and developers. So I do a lot of that. I do a lot of writing as well. I mean, it's something that I've come to really enjoy. You know, I enjoy doing these types yeah. of engagements. Are these the webcasts? The that's podcasts? correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Yeah, just heard about them right before we start with this podcast. But that sounds amazing. There is a huge, I guess, especially in the industry that we're working in today, a huge effort when it comes to marketing, when it comes to just presenting yourself in a certain way. And you talked a little bit about like greenwashing when it comes to the companies. But when it comes to just genuinely caring for the people, we really do bring out, you can really tell how much a company cares by the fact that they want to educate others and how much they want others to know and then to learn. So I feel like this entire conversation has been very, very educational, very much understanding what the industry is and understanding the pain points and I guess that's where Oliva and Gibbs come in too. So what are some of the highlights that you've had in your time with Oliva and Gibbs? Well, a lot of the highlights have revolved around just growing the organization over the last 10 years. We started off as just three attorneys in kind of a big open room, not unlike this conference room. It wasn't nearly this nice though. Since then, we've grown the firm from three attorneys to uh, nearly 40 now across four states and it's been an amazing journey. The highlight for me has probably been the people that we work with. 
I give, you know, all credit to them. I take very little credit for myself. I've been surrounded by amazing attorneys, amazing support staff the entire time. And that rising tide has really raised all the ships of our organization. It's been something very exciting to be a part of. And we think that this is really only the beginning for us. We have a lot of plans to uh, continue to grow and scale the firm and expand our practice. And I just look forward to seeing uh, what the next 10 years hold. Of course. And just off of that, I'm going to ask, why should we work with you? Question. Well, uh, sure, that's a great question. (laughs) And I think we bring a deep bench of experience and knowledge to the oil and gas industry, knowledge that I think is of interest to both oil and gas practitioners and renewable developers as well. We're able to help map the complexities of U.S. onshore oil and gas industry. We've got a presence across many states, um, and we bring that perspective as well. I think it's very valuable to understand and compare and contrast the way things work in one state from another. It just gives you a better idea of how the industry at large operates. And so we're able to kind of harness and focus that knowledge and that energy for our clients. And I like to think that we bring a lot of value as partners to our clients. Of course. And for my last question, we're just so happy to have you as a sponsor for the OGGN podcast, as well as our industry mixer that we're hosting today. So what are your plans about getting out of this event? I'd just like to meet everybody who comes and introduce myself, hear a little bit about their background. I'm very interested to see what types of people are attracted to these events. This is my first one. So I'm uh, certainly excited to uh, grab a glass of wine and see what I can learn from others. Of course. We have come to the end of this wonderful conversation, and I would like to thank all of our listeners and our sponsors for making this happen. And Brad, thank you so much for being here with us. This was such an amazing, amazing conversation, a lot to learn and a lot to take away from you. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to the next one. All right. Thank you. We have come to the end of this podcast, so I would like to go ahead and thank all of our sponsors and our audience for making this happen. Thank you so much for Oliva and Gibbs LLP, Carbeck Brewing Company, Endeavor Technologies for our venue, and our sponsor for this podcast is Park Energy. Park Energy, a leading provider of business automation technology for independent oil and gas upstream and midstream companies. And as always... A part of our proceeds tonight will be donated to Red M to help fight human sex trafficking. The links will be in our show notes. Until next time, take care. Check us out next month for another engaging episode of the Mixer Connections podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.